Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the chaos of our day-to-day lives, it's very easy for all of us to get so bogged down by the mundane that it becomes difficult for us to see or to focus on the mysteries of life. We hustle and bustle from thing to thing. We get too easily satisfied with insignificant creature comforts, and we lose sight of the important questions. Now, one way for us to re-enter the mystery of life is to meditate on food. Food is familiar to us. We eat it, after all, at least three times a day. We have giant grocery stores full of all kinds of food, anything we could need or want, probably more than we could ever need or want. And of course, if you do any of the cooking in your home, you've probably encountered countless onions and cucumbers, tomatoes, and shepherded them through the preparation process. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? I didn't know this until recently while I was reading a book by a theologian named M. Craig Barnes, but apparently the saying can be traced back to materials philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach who said it as a way to make a totally reductionistic, materialist statement. He was saying the human being is no more than the chemical processes and their caloric intake. You are nothing more than the sum total of the material substances that you absorb. Kind of a nihilistic phrase when you think about it that way. And of course, he's not totally wrong. There is a biological reason that we eat food. Like all other animals who have bodies, human beings require food for nourishment. Without food, our bodies would begin to break down. And so when we eat food, our body breaks it down into carbohydrates and proteins and fats that afford us calories which act as fuel. So there's a sense in which eating is a utilitarian exercise. If we don't do it, we'll die. Unlike other animals, however, humans can think more about their food because we possess rational capacities that other creatures do not. It's not common for a lion to sit around and contemplate whether it should eat the rest of the gazelle or maybe just have one serving because he's trying to watch his figure. Other animals eat purely from instinct. While we do share these instincts with animals, we also possess reason, which allows us to consider eating from other angles than that purely utilitarian and instinctual angle. Because of this, we can say that eating has not only a biological necessity for humans, but there's also a social element involved in eating. When we celebrate, what do we do? We share meals with those we love. When we're mourning, we share meals with those that we love. We even share meals with each other for no special occasion at all. Now, in our modern day, where food is easily accessible, it's perhaps hard for us to appreciate how important the sharing of food would have been in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, you would have been more constrained to the cuisine common in your geographical area based on what was available to you. Further, if you were a landowner, you would have been heavily dependent on the food that you produced for your own survival. So as theologian Herbert McCabe points out, if you shared a meal with someone in that context, you were doing two things. First, you were very much bestowing on them a kind of physical life because food wasn't as easily available for them as it is for us. And this is why hospitality was so taken so seriously by ancient people. It was a life or death 
matter. But also, you are recognizing others as worthy of sharing life with in a social sense. This is what makes the rich man's behavior so reprehensible in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The rich man had this poor man laying in his gate and never even acknowledged him as worth living, never offered him a single morsel of food or scrap from his table. He made a judgment that poor Lazarus was not worthy of life. Well, he deserves it or else he would have pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. And of course, this is a decision that in the parable has eternal ramifications. As the poor man Lazarus makes it to Abraham's bosom, while the rich man ends up in hell. This is because food is important on both physical and social levels, but it's also a prominent theme in the scriptures. Think about the very creation story. Adam and Eve placed in a garden to tend the trees, to eat of all the fruit from all the trees, except for just that one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And once they ate that fruit that they were not supposed to, it initiated what we call the fall. In Genesis chapter 18, we see God come to dine with Abraham and Sarah. We see Esau sell his birthright to Jacob for a pot of porridge. The great exodus of Israel in the Old Testament is tightly connected with the Passover Seder, in which a lamb was consumed by the people. And in the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, God provided manna from heaven for his people. The sacrificial system involved offering sacrifices from the food supply. And of course, if you turn to the New Testament, food doesn't take a back seat. Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. He miraculously feeds a predominantly Jewish crowd of 5,000 and then probably a predominantly Gentile second crowd of 4,000. And of course, one of the great images taken up by St. John in his apocalypse is that of the eternal wedding supper of the Lamb. Tonight, we focus our attention on one very special instance of eating. We might call it the pinnacle of all eating, the real sustenance that all of our other eating anticipates and points us towards. And that eating is the Holy Eucharist. When we receive the Eucharist, what do we really receive? The host tastes like bread. It feels like bread, or, or maybe it tastes and feels more like cardboard is a better description. The contents of the chalice smell like wine, and they taste like wine. But what our Lord told his disciples during the Last Supper, the same words we rehearse every Mass, and the same words that St. Paul quotes in our epistle reading this evening, is true. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. The Eucharist is not a metaphor. It is not merely a sign. Most signs point you to something else. Disney World, 10 miles that way. But in Holy Communion, the thing the, signs, the, thing the sign points to, the thing that's signified, is present in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, St. Paul tells us that Christ is interceding for us to his Father. This is because he acts as our high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, priests had to continuously repeat their sacrifices year after year, making the same sacrifice over and over and over again. Because the sacrificial system was a sign. It pointed to something else. 
And so it had to be repeated constantly. But that thing that the sacrificial system always pointed to is now here. Christ is the great high priest who made himself the victim, who offered his sacrifice on the cross once and for all. And now in heaven, he continuously presents himself to the Father on our behalf. So what is the Eucharist? What are we really receiving? It's a sharing in that one offering that Christ makes, the offering of the Son to the Father. So in the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ becomes present for us. It's here with us in a tangible way. And sometimes people get uncomfortable with that image of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Didn't Christ offer himself once and for all on the cross? Absolutely he did. It may have been a feature of some lay superstition during the Middle Ages that they believed that at every Mass that was said, Christ was somehow re-crucified, crucified again. But no part of the church has ever officially taught that. We call the Eucharist a sacrifice because it's a sharing in that once and for all sacrifice that was made on Calvary. Calvary is brought to us, and we are made partakers of the sacrifice that was made there. And we know that Holy Communion has this sacrificial connotation because we separate the body and the blood of Christ. So on the Feast of Yom Kippur in the Old Testament, which is also called the Day of Atonement, the priest would slaughter a bull, he would slaughter a goat, and he would slaughter two rams. And he would collect all of their blood in a bowl. The meat then that remained would be offered in fire, but the blood would be sprinkled. Part of the temple would be sprinkled with the bull's blood, the goat's blood would be smeared on the golden altar or the altar of incense, and the ram's blood would be dashed on the northeast and southwest corners of the outer altar. Similarly, in the Eucharist, we see a separation of body and blood. We offer first the host, the body, and then the wine, the blood. They are separated. So what we know is that Christ offers himself to the Father and gives himself, his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity to us. The Eucharist, then, is the height of our worship, not because of the literary, literarily beautiful canon of the Mass, which it is literarily beautiful, or the various ornaments and the intricate ceremonial. It's not because of what we do, but what Christ does for us through the church in giving himself to us. The Eucharist is a gift, the best gift that we could receive, a gift where we get to dine with God. And of course, when you receive a gift, the appropriate thing to do is to offer a gift in return, not in a tit-for-tat ledger system, but a way of gratuitously giving yourself to others. So if God gives us his son, what should we give him in return? And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. So tonight, Maundy Thursday, focuses on two aspects of the Christ story, the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, and then the gospel lesson, which is Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet as he prepared for his passion. So why do we call today Maundy Thursday, or as Jude called it when I first mentioned this day to him a couple weeks ago, Monday Thursday? The name for this day comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means command. 
And it refers to Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. This command occurs right after the episode that we read tonight, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And the connection is clear. Jesus shows his love for his friends in serving them. He washes their feet. But more than that, we know he's about to die for them. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I'd argue it's no accident that this gospel reading about service is paired with a reading from St. Paul's epistles about the institution of the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist is not just another thing we do. It's not a box to check. It's not like any other meal that we eat. It's an entrance into the great and cosmic mystery that is God and his people, the church. It transfigures and transforms all of our reality so that we begin to see that what is common is actually sacred. Holy Communion connects us to the worship of heaven with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. We worship our Lord together. So maybe, just maybe, Feuerbach was right and we are what we eat. But not in a purely material way, but in a mystical way. Because we come together to receive the body and blood of our Lord, whereby we are united to him and thereby united to each other. If we understand that the bread and wine brought forward are in fact the body and blood of Christ, maybe we too can come to that realization that C.S. Lewis had when he said, I've never talked to a mere mortal. If we encounter our Lord at the altar, then that should give way to us encountering him in others, particularly those in need. Benedict XVI reminded Christians that a Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. The Eucharist has practical implications for how we see the world, one that opens us not only to the movement of God, but also opens us to relationship with others, particularly those who are suffering and marginalized, because in them we find Christ. And when we find Christ, we should reciprocate the great gift that he gives us through loving service. If then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.